Hi folks, this is Sadia Yaqub, and you're listening to History Speaks on the Maidan Podcast, a series that situates the Islamic intellectual tradition within its socio-political context and connects it to pertinent issues today. Our third episode turns to Sufism and ideas of the self and its relation to society in Muslim mystical thought. In this episode, I speak with Sarah Abdul Latif and Oludamini Ogunaike about their research on Sufism from its early formative period in Nishapur to the early modern and contemporary periods in West Africa. Our conversation today covered many different topics, from Sufi conceptions of the self as dynamic and fluid, the role of the paradox in Sufi thought, and the simultaneous subversion and authorization of hierarchies in Sufi pedagogy. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Oludamini and Sara. Thank you again for coming and speaking with me uh, on uh, the History Speaks stream. Um, <clears throat> it really is such a, a pleasure uh, and an honor to be able to have this conversation with you. Um, I wanted to begin by asking you both uh, this question around the idea of the conceptions of uh, self and selfhood and the individual. Um, so, you know, for me, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about in my own work on Islamic law and um, and particularly around conversations that happen uh, in our contemporary um, in our contemporary moment. So you know my sense is that a lot of the kind of contemporary conversations around autonomy and self-determination uh, and the idea of the individual uh, is very much based on particular conceptions of the self uh, and and then the you know the 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 self and their relation uh, to society at large. So I wanted to sort of begin our conversation just by asking you, um, can you give us a sense of how the self is conceptualized uh, in, in Sufi thought? Thank you for having us, Sadia. It's honestly a pleasure. Um, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I work in medieval Sufism, so around 11th to 13th century. And so for me, that's it's a moment where Sufism is becoming institutionalized. It's a bit more formalized. It's less of, a, of an individual ascetic experience and more regulating the social order of uh, a Sufi group, right? So it, when I think about in that period of time specifically what self-determination or the idea of the self is, um, it's sort of occupying kind of a paradoxical state for me. Because with, with Sufi theology uh, at that time, they're talking about the elimination of the self, the elimination of the individual mm-hmm. identity, and allowing yourself to clear the channel for God's will to come through, right? Right, right. And at the same time, you have these rival groups. So there is some self-determination required. Uh, there's the creation of boundaries around what it actually means, what true dervishhood looks like in comparison to that rival group across the street who is not true, not a true form of Sufism in the eyes of these writers. And so it's a, the paradox that I'm finding is that they're discussing the elimination of the self and trying to remove uh, these particular cruxes of identity and at the same time using the identity of the other in, in a kind of a way of using the friction of the identity of the other to create smoothed out version of this prescriptive ideal form of the true Sufi. Um, so I play with that paradox a lot and I look a lot uh, in my specific research at, you know, these, these are elite men who are usually writing these texts. So I'm looking at how they're talking about people who they consider different from themselves along various axes, like some of the axes you've already mentioned, gender, age, uh, free, free, 
people versus enslaved individuals, sometimes uh, coming from different geographical locations. And I just kind of watch what they do with that information, whether they adopt that language, whether they change it, and when they're trying to refine this notion of what they consider the, the ideal Sufi to be at that time. Yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah, thank you, uh, Saadia, for having us on the podcast. I work uh, mainly on um, Sufism in West Africa from like, I don't know, 18th century to the present day. Um, and you see that same paradox uh, or similar paradox, you could say, of this: the self is nothing or the self is everything. And it's both at, at the same time. So the, the self is... Um, is something to be, it's an illusion to be overcome, this being like the nafs, uh, but then the kind of divine self, the sir or the khafi or the akhfa or something is not other than God or not other than the prophet or the reality of uh, the deep reality of human consciousness or human subjectivity is not other than uh, divine consciousness or, or, or divine subjectivity. And this is realized in uh, the state known as fana annihilation, which is the passing away, the annihilation of the kind of ordinary everyday self, um, and then the baka, the subsistence in baka billah, uh, the subsistence by God, uh, by the divine uh, self. But I think the, in, to discuss Sufi notions of the self, you have to situate the self within Sufi cosmology, mm. in which you have this hierarchy of levels of reality in different groups, you know, have different uh, formulations um, of this. But basically you have at the kind of, um, again, different Sufis, they'll switch the hierarchies, but you'll, you'll have like at the, your, your body, then you have uh, nafs, then you have a palb, a heart, then more subtle, you have uh, uh, an aql, an intellect, then more subtle, you have a ruh, then more subtle, you have a seer, and you have a, a khafi, a more hidden than you have an akhfa. So you have this kind of uh, spectrum of the self, or you have uh, similar Sufi notions going back to the classical period of different levels of nafs. Nafs al-Amara bisu, the soul that commands the evil. Nafs al-Lawama, the blaming soul. Nafs al-Mulhama, the inspired soul, all the way up to nafs al-Kamila, the, the perfect or perfected soul. So you, most of these conceptions of self, it's, it's kind of uh, a spectrum. And it's embedded, as you said, in a social context. But then this social context within Sufi cosmologies gets uh, a bit more complicated because it's metaphysical. You have mm. living dead saints, you have the prophets, you have the, the messengers, you have angels, you have, and most importantly, you have God, um, who are all part of the, you could say, social milieu uh, who are interacting um, and defining and shaping uh this spectrum concept of 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 the self and shout out to my colleague uh muhammad farouk who just published this this book um sculpting the self i think with the university of michigan press mm. that, that puts uh some of these ideas from i think mostly south asian and like persian uh later islamic philosophy and sufism into conversation with uh um, some western philosophical ideas and neuroscience and stuff like that yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds really wonderful, and and I really appreciate, uh, you know, this uh, 
point that you're bringing up, Oludamini, which is that, uh, you know, that that even like what it is that we conceptualize to be the, the you know, the, the social or society that the self is in relation to is very different when you bring in this kind of cosmology in which mm-hmm. there are the saints who are living, the saints who have passed there, are you know, there is the prophet, there is God. Uh, it reminds me of this um so when I was doing my master's at McGill, I did my thesis then on uh, female jurists in the pre-modern period. Uh, and I was, you know, researching on the life of this 14th century female jurist uh, who was a contemporary with Ibn Taymiyyah. Mm-hmm. And there's this really interesting entry um, uh, about her where, uh, you know, what's being described is that she used to climb the mimbar. Uh, mm-hmm. at the mosque to sort of sermonize uh, to these large crowds that would show up. And supposedly um, Ibn Taymiyyah felt uncomfortable with this and, and decided that he wanted to to stop her. But, but you know, he sort of prayed on it and, and mm-hmm. slept on it. And then, of course, had a dream where mm-hmm. the prophet comes to him and says, this is a pious woman, right? Mm-hmm. And then Ibn Taymiyyah never said anything to her, didn't try to stop her. And it's, you know, this really interesting kind of moment where you can see that, you know, the both like the idea of what is appropriate or not is not always determined by, you know, uh, social norms or legal rulings, but that there are these other, uh, you know, forces that can can intervene and they are compelling for people. Mm-hmm. And if you move outside of that cosmology, there's no way of ever being able to account for the agency, right, of the prophet or of God and the experiences that people have with them and the ways in which that shapes, right, the, their relationship with other people. So these visionary encounters with the Prophet are really big in uh, West African Sufism. And they're big in Sufism as a whole, but they're really central um, in West African Sufism. As early as the 15th century, the Sheikh in Timbuktu, uh, Sidi Yahya, Tadalisi, uh, said to have had visions of the Prophet every night um, until he did something which angered the Prophet and then got, anyway, got them back. Um, and uh, they were really key in these big uh, Sufi reform movements, um, almost all of which the, uh, began with uh, the founder or the leader uh, taking some kind of retreat and having a visionary encounter with the Prophet. So, for example, um, uh, Usman Danfodio's Sokoto Jihad uh, really began when he was given, he had a visionary encounter with the prophets and Abu Qadr Jilani who uh, bound him with the turban and gave him the sword of truth and gave him permission to wage jihad. Uh, he had kind of been trying to avoid outright warfare uh, with, with the king at the time who had been uh, persecuting him and his followers. And Sheikh Ahmadubamba's mission, his particularly uh, the nonviolent aspect of it, according to murid sources, came from a visionary encounter with the prophet Rudolf Ware tells the story wonderfully on the, several of his lectures, um, which Amadou Bamba had these visions of the Prophet, but it was kind of behind a veil, and he saw some people behind the veil, and the Prophet told him that these were the people of Bad. And Bamba said, well, what can I do to, to, to be with you always like the way they are? And uh, the Prophet told him, well, there's no sacrifice you can offer because they, they spilled their blood um, and they spilt blood when they didn't want to spill blood and when they didn't want to have their blood spilt. But now the time for spilling blood is over. So there's no, there's nothing you can give that will get you to their place. And this devastated Bamba and he begged and pleaded and the Prophet relented because he's Rauf Rahim. 
and said, all right, but you're going to suffer greatly at the hands of your enemies. Uh, but as long as you don't shed a single drop of blood, as long as you're not violent, uh, even so much as to crush a scorpion, um, then you'll be with me always the way they are. Um, and so this, according to Murid uh, sources, is the reason for Bamba's nonviolence, uh, the nonviolence of uh, his, his movement, the, the reason why he joined this kind of nonviolent resistance to um, French colonial occupation um, and, and didn't engage in uh, jihad, uh, jihad of the sword. Yeah, that's a good story, Sadia, too. I like that story a lot, too, uh, because I think about, um, you know, what what does it take for someone to vouch for a woman in this type of, you know, story that's shared in this anecdote? You know, if Ibn Taymiyyah had gone to another sheikh at the time, would that have been enough? Or does it really need to be this metaphysical encounter with the prophet? So right. this kind of, like, notion of how... Um, the gendered aspect of it for me sits in what it takes for a woman to be allowed or to be accepted or to be invited to take up the space that she's taking through that kind of encounter. So I like that story a lot. Yeah. Yeah, no. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I found the story, like I mentioned years ago, and it's just kind of stayed with me and I keep sort of, you know, ruminating on it. And, 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 you know, one of the things that, um, you know, that, that I've been thinking about a lot now is the ways in which, uh, you know, once you kind of take away these sorts of possibilities for people, right, that the the dream of the prophet coming to you is no longer authoritative the way that, you know, in the story it was for Ibn Taymiyyah, it forecloses certain possibilities for, uh, you know, people who might have a disadvantaged position in society, in, you know, the mm-hmm. the, the law, because these, you know, the prophet cannot sort of come in and intervene or the saints cannot come in and intervene. And and if they do, you're sort of sitting there going, I don't know whether I should trust this or not. <laughs> right. Uh, and there's so many stories like like this where, you know, um, people who uh, are seen as very sort of saintly and pious figures uh, have these dreams that correct them in something mm-hmm. that th- it is that they okay. said or did. And then they're compelled to change that. And that is a, a way in which, you know, people who are disadvantaged in society can negotiate their position in the social order, mm-hmm. right? That then becomes completely closed to them once you no longer think cosmologically in those ways. Um, I wanted to come back to this point that both of you raised that I really appreciate, which is this question of, uh, you know, this paradox in in Sufi in Sufism between self annihilation that that is sort of at one level the goal, right? Um, but then at the same time, you know, the, the the kind of onus is on you as as the individual, right? Like there is this kind of self determination that's built into that, and that you are supposed to very actively engage in this process of moving down this path, right, towards uh, self-annihilation. And I just wanted to ask uh, both of you to maybe, um, you know, uh, talk to us a little bit more about how you see that paradox working and um, and how that kind of helps us understand ideas of the self when there is this paradox between the annihilation of the self, but also the self as being the one who has the the onus and and the ability to actually move towards that, right? Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's the there's that interesting Sufi tradition, right? That says and so that notion of you know you start with your sense of self, with that nafs, 
and that through the process of examining it, right? So in one of the many schemes of the different forms of self that you go through the hierarchy of the self, you, I think um, Dominique was just talking about it, the nafs al-lawama, the self that, that takes account for its own actions. That level of the self is supposed to be one of the first stages you reach where you're sitting there and you're examining all the aspects of how the mechanism of the self works for you. That includes the illusion of who you are in the world, in society. It also includes the things that you may not know, the sly ways that that the ego self inserts itself into um, your interactions and particularly in your relationship with God and in your relationship with uh, the shiv. And then you move past that. So that's the starting point. You, you start to sort of um, merge with the teacher in some of these traditions, right? You, you start to not or eliminate yourself, annihilate yourself in your teacher. So then there's this mirrored self in uh, this mm. individual that has more authority for you, who stands before you. And you, you mimic them or you imitate them and you allow yourself to dissolve into them. And then you move further. So it's almost like you start with the small self that kind of uh, moves through these different phrases, absorbs these other people or these other identities and slowly starts to lose through the absorption into higher beings or into more authoritative beings. You start to lose uh, the self that you started with. So I think the paradox works as a lot of the time in Sufi thought and in Sufi teachings, right? The use of the paradox is sort of, it, it polarizes different aspects and it allows something mm-hmm. new to come through. So it's the same thing, sort of, you polarize the identity, the self um, into different directions, and then you allow it all to fade away and move through. Uh, so that's just one of one way I think we, we can conceptualize how the paradox actually has a pedagogical uh, function on, on the spiritual path in Sufism, yeah. Yeah, I think this um, the the step by step, the stage, the the different maqams or manazil aspect is really key. Because as as long as you still experience yourself as having a separate self, you have responsibility as you know you're you're, you're self directed. But that's for most of these uh, traditions something that's moved beyond and then in a certain sense reacquired. So uh, it's so what what happens. Uh, like, for example, in the Tijani tradition uh, that I study, first thing that happens uh, is fanafila. That's the first one. So you, you get a certain set of adkar exercises that you do. Um, you do that, you experience fanafila. You, you, you don't experience yourself. You, you don't perceive yourself. You don't perceive anything else. You just perceive uh, God, the, the divine reality. No distinction as that. Then you continue in that until you get annihilation in the prophet. Mm-hmm. And then after that annihilation in maybe like Sheikh Ahmed Tijani or Sheikh Bamiyas or one of these other realities. And that's a way of kind of integrating your ordinary separate self with this kind of uh, opening, this fat, this opening up onto a kind of expanded divine consciousness. Um, another way of looking at it is in cosmologically, everything comes from God. Everything's manifested from God. Mm. through the person of the prophet and everything returns to god through the spiritual reality of, of 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 the prophet as well so that means that the underlying substratum the underlying reality of everything is this prophetic reality is the hakikat of muhammadiyah is is the divine reality and, you know all these verses who are he's closer to you than your jugular vein the prophet's closer to the believers than their own selves um these these kinds of things uh, are interpreted in in light of this cosmology and 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 these and these experiences um, and so the uh, this I mean this it's kind of this this basic paradox of uh, 
of of a separate self or a separate will, which is generally in the like post Ibnarabi tradition, they love using the the verse of the Quran, You didn't throw when you threw, mm. but God threw. Right? Right. So there's there's a negation of you could say the action of the separate self. Mm. Then there's the affirmation. Then there's the negation uh, of, of it again. So you didn't throw. So no action of the separate self when you threw. Well, then there's the affirmation of it. But right. then there's the, also the the negation um, as as well. So you have the you have the fana, but fana is not the end. The end is baka. The end is the subsistence because we're just in fana. Like you can't tell you can't you can't drive a truck in fana. You can't you can't eat right. in fana. You know you're not gonna you're not gonna be around very long. Right. In, in fana. The, the goal is to they say that the combination jam of jam the combination of union and separation the union of union and separation. So in fana you just see God you don't see things. In separation, you just see things, you don't see God. In baka, in the union of separation and union, you see things in God and God in things. And so it's a kind of union of I have no self with uh, the with the, the relative existence of, of a separate of self as a tajali, as a divine um, manifestation. Um, and that's done through following in the footsteps of, of, the, of the prophet or even finding annihilation in the prophet. So it's 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 complicated. It's it's paradoxical, but there's a there's a real continuity of uh, of discourse and practice, particularly from the post Ibnatabi, you know, like 13th century um, onwards. Of course, there are all these interesting differences and competitions amongst different groups, but there's there's a lot of similarity on on this uh, particular fanabaka schema and this this conception of the self that's burned up, gone away, and then comes back. Uh, in a certain relative sense, like like a dream, like a dream, like a, you know, it's like we're, we're all gods. It's one of my favorite analogies when teaching. Like God dreams all of us into existence, and so we're these dream characters. And then you kind of wake up and realize there's nothing but God, but then come back in the dream, but with this consciousness uh, that contextualizes everything. Mm, that's a beautiful analogy. It's uh, and so powerful in terms of understanding, you know, this kind of uh, way of understanding human existence and and you know and what is real, um, and and you know part of what I hear both of you uh, talking about, which I you know would love to sort of hear your thoughts more on, is <clears throat> you know is that um, uh, in some ways you know our kind of like more common conceptions of you know the you know who you are. <clears throat> that um, circulates in 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 our world today, uh, you know, and you hear these kinds of articulations of be yourself, right? Like, yeah, be, yeah. you know, who's your authentic self, things of that nature. Uh, and, you know, and part of what I hear both of you talking about is that, you know, in, in, in a kind of Sufi understanding of the of the human self, it's so much more complex in terms of like, what is even the self? that exists in you there are all these you know the 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 nafsul amara and the nafsul lawama and the nafsul mutmainna and then there is the self that is you know unmade and remade uh so you know it really raises this question of like well who are you <laughs> right like what yep. is you uh and i'd love for you know to hear both of your thoughts on 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 this yeah that's a that's a good that's a good question um in fact that's the beginning of some of these sufi treatises like uh Shani Raz and things like that. It's like what is what what is the I, uh, what is what is the the human um, intellect. But yeah, it's um, one of the most interesting answers. Saduddin Kunawi Ibn Arabi's stepson and uh, you know kind of successor 
puts it in very philosophical theological language mm-hmm. that the the mahia right the the quiddity uh, the what what isness of the human being is simply wujud so you know typically islamic philosophy theology you have the mahia and the the wujud like the what it is and the being of it um uh, and in the case of the necessary existence the, the mahia the what is it the quiddity is simply its existence he says being made in God's image means that's the same thing for human beings, that they have no mahiya. Uh, human beings have no, uh, in the Quranic terms, maqam ma'loom, have no fixed station, have no what it is. So it's different from the, the philosophical, you know, rational animal or, or hairless bipedal, or, you know, some hairless featherless bipedal or so, something like that. Um, it's, it, it, the definition of a human being is that which cannot be defined. Hmm. Um, because that's what it means to be made in the image of God, who who also cannot be limited um, or or defined. But I mean, generally, kind of practically speaking, again, it usually goes to this kind of spectrum thing. So it's like, which level of reality are you talking about? Which which level of the self are you talking about? Are you talking about uh, the physical self? Are you talking about my social self? Are you talking about my psychological self? Are you talking about my subtle or imaginal self, you know, the self you encounter in dreams or uh, that you dream with, or you're talking about my spiritual self. Um, and then there's this notion of ayana thabita, these fixed entities, which are that the self is who you are in God's eternal knowledge of you. Mm. Um, and that's, I guess if you wanted to, uh, and yeah, that's, so there's this whole spectrum of selfhood from just kind of wujud uh, mutlak, absolute being, all the way down to, you know, uh, the ship of Theseus paradox with my toenails, you know, like all, all of my, all of the, all of the physical parts of me have gone away um, and, and, and then, then replaced everything, everything from my dust to, to uh, the, you know, the, my, my eye in, in, in God's knowledge. And while in some schemas, one is higher than the other, again, with this later Sufi uh, schema, they'll flip things often and, and we like the physical is the highest because it's that which uh, has the most obudia. Yeah, that was beautifully explained. Thank you, Old Amini. Actually, uh, that that notion of the lack of fixedness is in my work when I'm when I'm reading these Sufi texts. It's it's part of the it's it's how it's like a methodology almost, right? Mm-hmm. You, you yep. know, yep. the goal is to shake you out of mm-hmm. your conceptions mm-hmm. of reality. So the lack of fixedness to say that there's no, the real human self is in God, right? There's no other um, way to describe or root your reality. Um, so the lack of fixedness that, and the use of reversal, the use of, you know, saying, oh, you thought your body was the lowest form of reality. It's actually the highest. What it mainly points to is that there's no, there's not going to be, I think, there's not going to be a stable, consistent mm-hmm. teaching about these things. It mm-hmm. will be sort of in that moment with particular, you know, these teacher-student relationships are so important. So yep. be- with the student before you, with their own relatively fixed notions that you would have to break as the teacher, you would offer something that would reverse their idea of reality, not so that they hold on to that as a new reality, but so that they break out of any notion of fixedness in the first place. Exactly. And to allow that bewilderment to carry you through an experiential understanding for once, rather than any mental construction of who Mm -hmm. you are in the world, outside of the world, you know. 
Yeah, I love this point that uh, you're bringing up, Sarah, about the, you know, the, 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 <clears throat> that there isn't a kind of fixed notion. And this point that you brought up, um, <clears throat> Olodamini, about like enlightenment thought and this kind of model of the self, right, that is, that is uh, presented. Um, and it kind of reminds me of, you know, some of this uh, stuff that I've read on, on, on possession, you know, spirit possession, possession by gods and goddesses, um, you know, that is trying to make this point that, you know, in, in, in that kind of conception of the world and the, you know, the human in this sort of broader um uh, you know, world, there are all of these, you know, the, it isn't a kind of fixed self that can be relied upon to be the same from moment to moment, right? And that is somehow bounded and will not be affected by, you know, all these other forces that kind of exist in the world. It's a, it's a self that is constantly in motion and movement and, you know, can be possessed and, you know, and, and, and all of that. And, and, and that, you know, there's a certain amount of being shaken that you need, right? That, that your, your, um, uh, dependency on something that is fixed and stable needs to be shaken in order for you to be able to move, uh, you know, in the context of, of Sufism, to move spiritually. Uh, so I really love, uh, you know, this point that uh, both of you are bringing up on, you know, that 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 there's something that is lost to us when we come to rely on very fixed ideas of the self and a particular like model of, you know, this is what the self is and 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 you know, reliance on that. Oh, yeah, something you and Sarah just said reminded me of. So there's this doctrine, uh, may have been around before Ibn Arabi, but it gets picked up and often attributed to him. It's very popular in the West African Tijani tradition of Tajdid al-Khalq, the renewal of creation at each moment. So that's at each moment, everything in the universe is being created, in the cosmos is created and returned to God in the same breath. And they say even time and space like the images you see on like a projector or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there's actually, in a certain sense, there's no continuity from one moment. And here it's not even like regular temporal moment, but one moment of existence to the next. Each one is a completely new manifestation from, from, from the divine. So I mean, similar to certain Buddhist notions of, of uh, no, no, no selfhood um, at, at, at a certain level. Um, so yeah, it's a very, you get all of these, but again, all of these pictures and conceptual, um, uh, you could say, constructions or models or, thing, or things like that aren't meant to just kind of stand alone as uh, just a, a picture of what reality is, but are meant to produce, produce, a, a, produce a self. They're, they're meant to produce a, a particular kind of selfhood. Yeah, I, I, you know, I often find uh, when I'm teaching, this is, I feel like, one of the most challenging things to get across to students, uh, teaching, you know, about Sufism, but, you know, more broadly, uh, teaching about uh, the pre-modern uh, Islamic context, because I think there's such an idea of, you know, who the self, of what the self is, and what the, you know, individual should want that students come in uh, believing to be universally true, right, and and as an absolute good, and to then be introduced to this whole other world of how to think about the idea of the self that it's not fixed that there's constant movement and like you know who is even the self right there's this cacophony of voices inside you right there's the sort mm -hmm. of the, mm -hmm. the 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 different ways in which the different uh nafses the nafses are pulling on you then there is mm -hmm. the waswasa right those whisperings mm -hmm. of uh, of the of satan and and other sort of uh you know uh, evil forces so who you know how do you know whether this voice is your own right or you trust it or not like all of these things are things that people are trying to think through uh and 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 you know to get students to sort of because i you know what i've sort of experienced that that is that students are often 
willing to uh, challenge their own conception of what is right and wrong, provided that uh, what they're uncomfortable with is an affirmation of an individual's, you know, autonomy and determined self-determination. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, they come across things that they see as, uh, you know, that they're sort of uncomfortable with. Uh, and then, you know, and then they're like, okay, I can accept this if this is what the individual wants. Right. Mm-hmm. And to mm-hmm. how to kind of move them to recognize that, well, you know, in this context, it's not just that this is what the individual wants, right. That this is a kind of articulation of their own desire, but that they are actually very critical of their own desire. So this is meant right. precisely to, undo, you know, their own desire. And, uh, you know, it's so challenging to kind of get, uh, you know, people to understand that because it is so different in some ways than the ideas of um, self and self-affirmation that have become so, um, you know, such a, such a truth for us. Yeah. Yeah. For when I'm, one thing I, I end up doing almost every year, I think is it, it sort of takes me a while to uh, discuss in a more informal setting with students a kind of way of thinking about these people as human beings, just like you and me, with very similar ways of trying to solve problems, right? But that the resultant, like the concluding solution they might come to might be very different because of their particular socio-historical circumstances. Right. But to to do the thought experiment of putting yourself in their shoes at that time with the resources that you have and having a problem of the self come up or a problem of identity or a problem of politics, you know, I, I have them think through what would, what would you do in those shoes? Mm-hmm. And you, you start mm-hmm. to find those, that little bit of the consistency of the human experience, even yep. while the garb on the outside might look very different. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I found <laughs> talking to students about things where they do encounter this, like exercise or diet or, mm-hmm. um, or love particularly my favorite mm. classes I teach is what is love class. We read a lot of love poetry. Mm. Um, so you think about, okay, well, your beloved doesn't want to see you right now, but you want to see him or her. So do you do what you want or do you, do you do what your beloved wants? Mm. Uh, and it, it, so these, these kinds of things, getting creative and getting them to put themselves in either a similar situation or finding analogs like, um, you know, oh, you want to be a look at all the freedom break dancers have. They can right. do a gymnast. They can do all this stuff. How do they get that freedom to to do to do that kind of? I put on some music and tell you guys to dance. Half of you are just going to be doing the same awkward <laughs> hip, <laughs> hip shaking thing, whatever. You know, but you know, unless you grew up dancing. But if, you know, how how do people who are really good dancers get like that? Uh, by there's there's a context. There's kind of discipline there's there's training whether formal or informal um and that's that's how you get this kind of freedom um and so examples like this i think give them a little bit of a a little bit of a window um into what it's like yeah that's a, a you know really great point that both of you are raising of like getting you know getting students to see themselves that these ideals that we have around individual self determination right and that whatever you do, you do because you choose to do it, uh, you know, is even in our own realities doesn't play out. I, I brought this up recently with uh, students this semester about, you know, coming to the institution, like you choose to mm-hmm. come to the institution, you want to come to the institution. But that didn't mean that you chose every aspect of what that decision would then mean. And oftentimes you disagree with, right, ways in which you're expected to live while at, you know, this institution or what the culture of the institution is that you are then really being molded into. Um, but you, you know, you, you do it and somewhat resist it, but somewhat also kind of, you know, lean into it because 
you know, at some level you're invested in this, the institution creates desires in you that didn't exist before. Right. So it's right. like, right. it really complicates, uh, you know, this idea that like, it's just me making decisions, you know, every step right. of the way. Yeah. I actually remember we thought, I talked about this with, with our classes. Cause I was like, okay, so you guys all chose to take this class, right. but <laughs> I know some days you don't want to come to class, right? <laughs> you don't want to turn the, you're just sick of zoom, but some of you did it anyway. So you, you get a sense of this kind of complexity. But I mean, it gets really deep in the Sufi sense, this famous saying that again gets repeated throughout the ages down to the present day with from uh, Abu Yazid al-Bastami, Uridu an la urid. I want not to want. Hmm. I want to not want. Um, and the, the kind of uh, abandonment of, of wanting as being freedom hmm. um, is, is, is a really, really strong uh thread that that runs through a lot of these different traditions that eventually get called sufism right yeah that's a really incredible point about you know like like what is freedom right what are we if 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 liberation is the aspiration well liberation from what mm-hmm. right uh and and liberation to do what and mm-hmm. and the example that you're giving is a, is a very you know a particular way of understanding, you know, what you're trying to free yourself from and to, you know, and to what purposes. Um, I wanted to, you know, ask uh, this question about, which I think, you know, for uh, a lot of people who study Sufism, but also for, you know, the many of us who kind of read, you know, your scholarship and are very interested in Sufism, uh, you know, that uh, are are kind of sort of trying to grapple with, which is this kind of hierarchical aspect of Sufi thought. Uh, And, you know, would love to, you know, kind of get your thoughts on it. And this is, again, something that, you know, in my own work, I see that, um, you know, the kind of uh, social order that's imagined by the jurists that I, you know, spend a lot of time reading is one that is, uh, you know, very, very hierarchical along, uh, you know, a very complex matrix of different um, identities, uh, you know, that that set up a number of different hierarchies. And I always, you know, find myself both really appreciating the the way in which they understand the individual as very much a part of and, you know, located in um you know, in that those kinds of, uh, you know, social connections and relations, but then also, you know, start to feel uncomfortable with that kind of hierarchical ordering of it. Uh, so I would love to, you know, hear your thoughts on how this, uh, you know, uh, manifests itself in, uh, in, you know, the particular time periods and uh, thinkers that you're looking at, and also how you kind of grapple with this question. Yeah, that's a great question. I think definitely the concept of the hierarchy uh, if anything, in my view, that's even stricter with Sufism mm-hmm. because you have mm-hmm. the cosmological hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. With the Qutubs and the Abdes, like you have these levels of beings who continue their work in the unseen. Right. And and the and the pyramid, so to speak, the hierarchy itself is so is so rigid that the it's it's almost like the acceptance of their will as channels of Allah's will, of God's will, you know. So you you kind of follow through in their footsteps in that sense. So uh, and then it manifests even in the physical plane when you have a Sufi order with the Sheikh, and then you have his Khalifas or you know whatever this team might be that. It, these things, the, the authority that you invest in these individuals, you you can't just invest in anybody. So I think hierarchy is one of the things people find quite tough about Sufism for a tradition that's all about, you know, the lack of fixedness of the self and all these things and being one with God with no intermediary and all, uh, all that kind of stuff. But one way that I, I sit and I conceptualize and I think through it is that 
while we've been talking about a lack of fixedness of the self and eliminating the self, um, at the same time, while the individual self, the goal is to eliminate it, the container in which you do so is actually mm-hmm. quite rigid and hierarchical mm-hmm. in Sufism, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's through the ability to maintain the structure and the integrity of the container, i.e. through the sisila or the chain of transmission from teacher to student. It's only through the rigidness of that that a lot of the times the, the belief is that you can receive the teachings as purely as possible in order to walk the path in the best way. So then you have that kind of paradox. You have the outside being rigid so that the inside can fade, can dissolve. Um, yeah. 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 That's great. Um, I mean, it's really complicated when you get into the social stuff because you get all kinds of forms of social organization, social hierarchy, their antinomian Sufi movements, which were like all. Uh, I mean, even present day, <laughs> antinomian Sufi movements were all against certain social hierarchies. You have very much Sufi movements that are wedded to or that produce new hierarchies, or all, all different kinds of things. But I think the key is in what Sarah was saying. Uh, there's this famous quote um, that defines kind of Sufism as Urbudiya Zahiran and Huriya Batinan. It's Minakhlaq al Kiran. So it's it's outward slavery, and Urbudiya is like really slavery. Uh, and inward freedom, and that that's among the character traits of the of of the noble. So there's a certain sense in which the outward is is really really fixed, in 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 some ways. So like there's no or almost no compromise on saying the five prayers on time, and all you know in 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 some orders in congregation, and then the rules of these different orders uh, that come are really really strict. And but that's how you're supposed to get the kind of uh, inward freedom so it's at what level is the freedom but then again it gets with this cosmology there's the potential for everything to get turned upside down right so you have the silsilas but then you also have the prophet coming to people and initiating them directly you have so for all of these different things this this kind of opening into the rabe allows for these um what can seem to us like exceptional circumstances but which in so-called pre-modern or non-modern uh, uh, societies or settings, almost like par for the course, in which you have you have the eruption of the rabe into the sh- of the unseen into the into the into the scene, which produces new social orders, new hierarchies, disrupts things. So you have all of these. So you have loads and loads of Sufi stories in which, uh, like Sarah was talking about, you have this hierarchy of saints, and like the top people are all enslaved mm-hmm. um, outwardly. You know, they're they're all. Um, they're all uh, at the lowest level. I mean, this, this has become like a trope in, in, in Sufi literature. So these, these people are uh, at the lowest rung of society outwardly, but at the, they're at the highest levels of the kind of divine hierarchy that governs the, the universe and, 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 and everything. And this is complicated because in a certain sense, it's, this, it's, it's subversive of the hierarchy, but there's a kind of trace of it reinforcing the hierarchy, like, oh, it doesn't matter that, uh, about this this uh this this unjust or whatever social hierarchy um because these people are at you know at the, at the top of of the inward hierarchy but then you have all of these sufi particularly in west africa you have all of these sufi revolutionary movements mm. that create new societies um and new uh I mean, some of them according to rudolf ware uh being anti-slavery or at least anti-slave trade and then with the case of sheikh Ahmed bamba uh as well too uh intentionally destroying the the kind of caste system that exists. So he, Sheikh mm-hmm. Hamadou Bamba, leader in the 
colonial, uh, what was then becoming colonial French uh, Senegambia uh, in the early 20th century, late, late 19th century, uh, intentionally takes people from leather working families, from these casted like low caste from slave backgrounds, and puts them in charge of people from scholarly families. So he's intentionally trying to, but then the order, his order develops, forms its own structure, and you get, you know, a, a different hierarchy hmm. there, there as well. So you're constantly getting, there are these social hierarchies that are established. Uh, Sufis are part of these outward social hierarchies. But because of this kind of openness to the unseen, there's this potential, again, not, not always realized, for this uh, disruption or subversion of these uh, social hierarchies or for a reinscription and uh, support of existing social hierarchies. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, but also to your point, Sadia, I think what's vocalized with Sufi texts particularly, when there's a, a, an actual conscious effort to put down teachings, what's vocalized is usually the tip of the iceberg on purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, again, uh, just any kind of statement of equality I, or, or otherwise, I, I, don't, I don't sit and take it as that's what that person believes. I sit and think, what are they trying to get me to go through? in reading this and it's okay. even more so in person right so if you know a particular if i'm saying with a particular sufi teacher and they're explaining something as you know a radical equality it's as for me as a scholar of sufi teachings and literary devices and all these kind of rhetorical moves i'm thinking what experience are they trying to put me through what mm -hmm. new wit version of reality are they trying to induct me into and so the words are almost a veil in themselves they're an illusion in themselves and it can be very very hard to pinpoint whether or not a particular a sufi teacher or master actually believes these words or if they're using them as a distraction to put you through a process of transformation that's at the heart of their pedagogical technique. Yeah, I was also thinking, I mean, it's, there are things that are said, but there's also so much more to just like uh, the embodied, like the kissing of hands, the um, uh, who's ser serving of water. So like some sheikhs will go and serve all of their disciples water. Mm. Other sheikhs will sit and then people come and serve them water right. and, and uh, massage their feet and, and do other things. Other people, they hate people kissing their hands. They won't let it happen. Others, you know, go around and let everybody kiss their hand. So there are all of these different ways. And I think what Sarah is saying is there, um, I mean, for I mean, some people might just like to get their hands kissed. But I mean, <laughs> in terms of, if, if you think of it in terms of like serious Sufi pedagogy, it's all serving a certain purpose, a certain pedagogical lesson. It's all serving as ishara, as, as illusions that are supposed to help train or develop and teach certain things to the disciples. You see this in written texts, you see this in gestures, you see this um, in even body language, greetings. Um, it, it, it really kind of all, 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 all comes together. And you, you see this a lot, again, the stuff I know the best is Ibn Arabi and afterwards, in which they'll just constantly flip these hierarchies on. They'll set right. up one hierarchy, <laughs> and in the next three pages, they just completely flip it. Right. And then the next, it's like a kaleidoscope. You just keep turning it and you get a different, perspective on it and it's it's meant to kind of it's like like putting you through conceptual yoga or something like that you go through these mm -hmm. different positions and that's supposed to transform the way you see things you see yourself and and the way you're supposed to transform your being right right yeah and you know one of the things i've seen in 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 my own work um 
you know, which is which is not to sort of idealize or romanticize, uh, you know, hierarchical, uh, you know, social orders. But one of the things that I've been thinking about is that, you know, in the in, in the sort of legal world, um, there are so many different hierarchies, right? Like there isn't yeah. just one hierarchy. There are many, many different kinds of hierarchies. And so, you know, having a world in which there's so many different hierarchies that are functioning allows for people to move across the different hierarchies. So they're not always only in a disadvantaged position. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I think that, you know, a lot of us that have been thinking about Islamic law and particularly like from a kind of, you know, thinking about gender in Islamic law have kind of missed the ways in which, you know, different kinds of women might sit in different places in the social order, depending on which hierarchy Right, we're looking at because uh, you know, woman and man, right? That gender hierarchy is not the only one. And right. so, if you are a free adult woman who you know can sort of has the financial ability to also uh, you know uh, have slaves, for example, right? Now you are in a hierarchical relationship over enslaved people, right? And right. so, what does it mean then to only see you as a woman who is disadvantaged? And so, those multiple kind of hierarchies that are functioning at the same time also allows movement, uh, right. you know, across the hierarchies that in its you know in, in another way kind of you know challenges and an oh, idea absolutely. that yeah because when, when we're looking at the prescriptive models right we're not seeing where it's sort for me it's like sort of like when you're on a sidewalk they're laying down these stones but there's ways that grass shoots through anyway and right. so depending on the intersection of the person's identity and I, I think intersectional methodology really works well in history as well and it's not used as much that's that's where you start to you know you you if you analyze these things alongside each other how does a free elite woman who owns enslaved individuals, you know, operate in this circumstance versus that circumstance, and you line them all up and then compare that with other people, you start to see how these systems are not as, they're not consistent really at all. They're sort of um, points that are put on the horizon, and then people are just trying to do their own thing. They walk their own paths. So, um, so that's, that's, that's where I really think, uh, you know, intersectional gender methodologies way is way more useful and would serve Islamic studies much better in, in the historical context because then it allows you to kind of um, break some of the ways that we even as scholars would categorize things as a social hierarchy as if it's, it's rigid and operates in that way when the lived reality is, is often always much more complex right right yeah, yeah I love I love that image of the grass growing up through the through the through the concrete or the stepping stones or things like that yeah because people expect these there's a certain expectation I think of of scholars that uh, these social hierarchies or systems of oppression or something will be like logical mm-hmm. or something. They're, right. they're not. They're, right. they're, they're, right. they're people. They're people doing, right. they're people doing things and re- reacting to different circumstances. And I mean, they're, they're rarely, lo- I mean, there's a certain logic to them, but they're rarely logical. Like racism is not that logical. You, you can understand it and how it works, but it's, it's rarely or sexism or any of these other things. Um, and it, with Sufism, though, it gets really uh, very interesting because you have these people who come from, you know, presumably the lowest backgrounds. You have black enslaved women um, who uh, are lauded as these great saints and put on top of these 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 hierarchies um, of, of of sanctity and like, oh, they're the ones you have to ask to pray if there's a drought, or mm-hmm. they're the ones who. So you, you get you get these 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 tropes and even like contemporary examples where you have people who are um, looked down on by society they like sell shoes they're like walking around selling shoes um, and then 
somebody will realize their status or something like that. And then their social situation will change if they want it to. Some people just want to be left left alone. But so you, you get this in, these interesting possibilities of subverting or changing uh, these, these social, when, when you add these kind of spiritual hierarchies, mm. in addition to these complicated and complex and dynamic um, social hierarchies as, as well. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that reminds me what you're saying, Olodamini, about, you know, this kind of ethic that was drilled in us as kids when we were little, uh, you know, uh, growing up in Pakistan about, you know, being very careful um, mm-hmm. in your dealings with people who are, uh, you know, who've been dealt with unjustly uh, mm-hmm. or who are oppressed or who are vulnerable mm-hmm. in society because the, you know, the, the, the distance between them and God is mm-hmm. very, very short. And so, you know, y- you, you want to be very careful because if you sort of step the wrong way and they pray against you, right, you're going to get destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and, and I mean, obviously that didn't mean that people were actively working to change the conditions that these right. people were in, but it does kind of, you know, in some ways provide a, 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 you know, a certain kind of spiritual tool for those people to be able to navigate their situation, right? And they oftentimes did call on that, right? And that like, if they felt like somebody was being cruel to them, right, they would call in this way of saying, you know, be careful in the way that you relate to me, right? Because I mm-hmm. don't want to make a, 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 you know, a prayer against you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that and that had a power, right? That that, that did actually have power. It, it would silence people, right? Uh, in, in ways that I think Certainly is not something that, you know, I have seen since my childhood now that I've moved to a totally different, you know, different context. But you do see it in the text a lot, right? Like there's all these stories about these, you know, beggars or these old women in the desert or all these sort of things where this person who who on the outside looks a certain way and they have the spiritual power. But, you know, I, I think about the function of those stories a lot in my research and, you know, it's not an invitation to be in their situation ever. Those they're they're very trope they're very much tropes that allow the elite male presumed reader to reflect on himself through right. another that he considers completely and drastically different from himself right so uh, it, in the context that you're talking about and I, I had similar things growing up in Kuwait and in Egypt right um the idea is that you know what's the lesson right the idea is that you don't know who's the closest to God and you just right. be careful things are not as they seem and then that same lesson is in the stories that are that are repeated in Sufi texts where it's like things are not as they seem. But in the stories, the difference I've found is that they at the same time reinforce that that's still how things should stay, though. Things may not be as they seem, but the outward social hierarchy is how things should stay. Just because this one person in the desert who looked like an old woman who didn't have anything ended up being able to do the spiritual feat or karamat or whatever uh, doesn't mean that now you can go and make her the the head of your Sufi order, right? It's a very specific momentary flash of a spiritual authority that's supposed to uh, get the male reader to think about themselves and how they can be better. So they can end up becoming the head of the Sufi order. So... Yeah, so I th- I think that's that's definitely how they use sometimes, but classically and then especially in the West African case, you do get the opposite. You do get people yeah. from lowly backgrounds being named as prominent muqaddams, given ijazah, mutlaqas, put over people from traditional elite uh, yeah. backgrounds, officially um, and unofficially. And there there are ways in which this zahir and batin discourse. Um, that that circulates. So, okay, this person is the Khalifa Zahiran, but Batinan, this person is really this this old woman is really the Khalifa. So we right. should, you know, all 
but but then that translates into actual social capital for that person. So that person, like, um, so I've I've seen both contemporary examples and then even in 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 texts and things like this. So you have this interesting example of um, uh, that's really widely read text in West Africa, Abdelaziz Adabar, who's a semi-literate uh, fessy, um, not not that well educated, um, comes from a tanning family, although he's 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 a, he's a Sayyid. And he has this incredible fat, like Khidr comes to him and teaches him this, these prayers and he has this incredible fat. And uh, then this sheikh from Nigeria comes and completes his training and does all this wild stuff. And anyway, he becomes the, the teacher of all of these fuqaha in Fez, mm-hmm. these very prominent elite scholars in, in Fez who kind of, uh, through dreams and other things and asking him questions, recognize his high spiritual station and come to him for legal. They'll like ask him questions and he'll ask the prophet, and then give the answers back to them and reasons and explanations, and they end up following him and becoming his students and things like. So you have these like the text can operate, and you see this in West Africa as well too. It's just like for elites to look at. Oh wow, isn't that interesting? The roles could be reversed. This that function in this way of upholding the hierarchy. But you also have these ways in which the text and then these actual social situations lead to these strange reversals of, or even um, what was it? Sharani's sheikh. Ali Khawas, mm-hmm. um, you know, was was supposedly unlettered um, as 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 well. Too. So you you have these interest or these interesting uh, stories, whether legendary or or historical, uh, in which these botan or hidden or spiritual hierarchies lead to real. Uh, well, not I shouldn't say real because you know it's, it's, it's lead to social or zahir um, reversals or or, or changes. Uh, as as in, in in behavior in social structure, um, and 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 other things too. And this is most like very very evident in in all of these kind of Sufi jihads and new social movements that that are produced um, in in West Africa from the from the 18th century uh, onwards, which just create all these new social orders. Um, I don't know. I thought Sarah's point about the the instrumental way in which these reversals are used to uh, reinforce hierarchy is a really important one because mm-hmm. they, they, they really are used like that. Right. Uh, I mean, it's not the only way they're used, but they, I want to make sure I don't come across as just disagreeing with that because I very much agree with it. Um, <laughs> no, you brought a really uh, good point. Although yeah. I think uh, the thing is, yeah, none of, none of these things will operate in a singular way, right? They'll always yeah. operate in, in lots of different ways depending on the needs. And one of the things I was thinking about as you were explaining the specific ways that it didn't operate that way in your examples, I was thinking immediately, well, that's interesting. I wonder what the history of the Adamet are in like West African Sufi circles that you're talking about, that they would at some point feel uh, that they need to have them re-educated in, in a certain way by people from a different social milieu, right? So, because I'm looking at the very formative period of like the emergence of Sufi orders, where it was at least one of my arguments in my research is that I do think, especially in Nishapur, where I look at, it was an elite phenomenon. The Sufis mm-hmm. and the dervishes were very much from the upper classes of Nishapuri right. society. So, of course, it would operate differently when you have uh, the starting, the emergence of these elite circles that are uh, putting together what a Sufi order is, what a correct way of being a Sufi student is, who the correct teacher is, versus fast forward later, when you've had Alamet and you've had lots of, I'm sure, political infighting about these mm-hmm. sort of things. 
and then you have this reversal in the ties and, you know, let's get the, this person from a tanning family. And that has its, a whole other different purpose. And I'm sure a very interesting sociopolitical background, too. Yeah. Um, so if you have anything, uh, I would love to hear a little bit more personally about sort of the sociopolitical context of. Yeah, there's this interesting trend um, in West African Sufism, which has been kind of the expansion of. Sufi devotional practices and disciplines and uh, notions of attaining uh, marifa, direct knowledge uh, of, of God, reality, and uh, sanctity or wilaya to, from kind of elite scholarly circles or scholarly lineages to non-scholars, housewives, lay people, uh, young people, uh, etc. There's kind of an increasing, if you look at these different Sufi movements, uh, you can say, like, start with Usman Danforio's Sokoto movement. Uh, Sufism is very, very important there. It's there at the, the outset. Danforio identifies, and his whole clan identify very strongly with uh, Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani and the Qadiriya. Um, but it's it, Sufism is just kind of part of this uh, integral pass, package of being a, a good Muslim a good scholar and the sense is that the Sufism is, is a practice is, is still somewhat an, an elite practice. Uh, the devotions that this popular devotion and popular piety that's influenced by heavily by Sufi cosmologies and, and other things, but the, the really serious discipline of Sufism seems to a certain degree to be limited to these, uh, to, to the people who have already excelled or who also excel in these other uh, disciplines as well. So a kind of scholarly elite. Then with um, Sheikh Amadou Bamba's uh, movement at the turn of the 20th century, um, you, you see a much greater popularization of Sufism uh, to, and Sufi practices and Sufi initiations to amongst non-scholars, um, amongst people who don't come from a scholarly background, even amongst people who don't uh, develop much uh, scholarship, you know, don't develop anything beyond a basic mastery of fiqh or aqidah, uh, they're receiving serious Sufi training uh, as, as well. So there's an increased emphasis there on and kind of popularization of Sufism. And then uh, this, you see this dynamic really come to the fore with the Fida, the, the movement of Sheikh Ibrahim Yas, um, which promises uh, Marifa and very high spiritual stations to really anyone who undergoes the discipline, regardless of their uh, scholarly training, knowledge of Arabic, uh, et, et cetera. So it's really kind of uh, democratized or popularized, uh, very serious Sufi training um, to the extent that, you know, people will often do their tarbiyah, do their spiritual training, and then go and study uh, Arabic and the, the, the exoteric sciences, the fiqh, uh, etc. Thanks for listening to this episode of History Speaks. I'm very grateful to Oludamini and Sara for speaking with me today about their research. You can find more information about their work as well as more information about the History Speaks series at themaidan.com backslash podcast. And please stay tuned for our next episode.